Coming up next, Never Gonna Let Me Go. Hey everybody, welcome to Never Let Me Go, part two. Booking in the dark. Booking in the dark, booking after dark. That's right. Here we are. This is going to be an interesting podcast. We are doing this literally in the dark. The lights are out. A storm killed the power. We are using our reserve battery power on our recorder right now. Maybe this episode will be short. I don't know. This episode cuts out we've in the middle. Never, we've never really had to test out how long this field recorder will last. Right. Yep. So I'm calling it right now, folks. If this episode just dies in the middle, this is what you get. We'll be we'll be we'll we'll be back next. If I die in the middle of this sentence, <laughs> whoa, then I won't be back. But if nope. this episode dies in the middle, then we'll be back next week. So wouldn't that be weird and exciting and fun and different? That would be. Let's kind of hope it happens. Speaking of weird, exciting, fun, and different, Brandon. Hey. You are fun. Thanks. One out of four ain't bad. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, Nathan. Not that weird, exciting, or different for this podcast. Frankly speaking, I don't think any of us are. Yeah. But podcast. Like for this podcast? What do you mean? For the world of the booketing. I think the booketing in and of itself is all four of those things. Okay. By our powers combined. We are all four of those things. But would I say that for the listener of the booking who comes every week for those qualities, any one of us represents those qualities? No. No. I wouldn't say that. Yeah. But you are- But together we are a triforce that creates those things. You know, you took the words right out of my mouth. (laughs) Great. Together we are a triforce that creates those things. Yeah. You know? (laughs) <laughs> I'm always like, honey, I'm going to go record with the Triforce that creates the things. Yeah. She's like, oh, yeah, tell them I said hi. Triforce of weird, exciting, fun, and different. Triforce of the weird, booking. exciting, fun, and different. Yeah. Which one of those qualities do you think best sums up Pastor Jake Menzel, the pastor who's a master of reading? Exciting. He's a very exciting guy. Different. Different. He's actually juggling machetes right now. That's pretty different. Well, I was really thinking exciting there, <laughs> but it is different. Yeah. I don't know how many people I've seen juggle machetes. I haven't seen none. Going on zero. Yeah. Mm. One now, I guess. Uh, did, did we actually introduce the other guy, Brandon, scholar who's baller of reading? Did I say his name? Why don't you introduce him, Jake? This well, never, this never right literally never happened before. Yeah. Brandon Chastine, the scholar who's a baller of books. Yeah. That's actually what it originally was. But not anymore. Not anymore. Now he's the scholar who's a baller of reading. Yep. He gave us... Some intense, awesome context last week that I wasn't That's here for. Right. It was I'd very intense. Errands. It was intense. Yeah. yeah. Like the People circus. People were scared. Like the circus. Just Is like that a joke circus. that actually, did that whole dumb dad joke thing? I have no idea. to an episode or was that part of what got erased by power outages? That's a really good question. So folks, we are actually redoing a little bit of this episode because our power was outaged. Yep. And... I don't know. Files got corrupted in the process. Files got corrupted. Boom. The Triforce of, what is it What is it again? Oh, the Triforce of weird, exciting, fun, and different. Yeah, was stopped by Ganondorf. That's right. The Ganondorf of power outages. Yep. I know my Zelda. I know the original Legend hey, of Zelda. Hey, you know what is a Triforce shape? What's that? A Christmas tree. Thought Christmas. Triforce. It's all coming together. Right. It's thought Christmas, y'all. Yeah, it is thought Christmas, y'all, because the bookening's talking about never let me go. Hey, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the baggage that we bring to this novel. Brandon, you already like talked buku about your baggage, but yeah. you want to talk some more about it? Well, my baggage with this novel was I read it when I got into a big Ishiguro kick after we read Remains of the Day. Mm-hmm. I liked his stuff, so I decided to read a lot of his works. And as far as tone goes, this one, I put this with the buried giant as being um, his melancholia stage. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I guess that's kind of what he shifted towards here, towards the end of his career. His, they're very kind of sad and melancholic. Well, it turns out a lot of people, when they 
reach the age where they are thinking about mortality and death yeah. and get to be old, Yeah, write some of their more melancholy works. Well, there we go. That it makes sense then. Thank you for explaining that. You're welcome, Brandon. I'm glad I could be here to provide insight, excitement, fun, and whatever the other things were. Yep. Jake, what baggage do you bring to this novel? Remains of the day. My one and only exposure to Ishiguro. I was not as big a fan of that book as either of you, I don't think. I certainly weren't a hater, though. Not a hater. Well, you have to respect the craft. And there was no question we were dealing with a master craftsman. So I respected what he did, but it, I didn't really, wasn't all that into it. So it was a good book. Well done, well written, whatever, but not my bag. Never not your bag. Wasn't. Yeah. So. True or false, you were never an emotionally stunted butler. True. Huh. Yeah. Brennan, on the other hand. Yes, I am a butler. That's my actual job. Mm-hmm. And I'm emotionally stunted. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, the listeners knew that already. Yeah. Ooh. Great, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> what, what more evidence did we need than that weird moment? Yeah. No, Brandon's not emotionally stunted. Brandon is emotionally whole. And, well, who cares about that? Let me get my baggage. Um, <laughs> I started the premise and I bailed on it all in the space of about 20 seconds. Bravo, Nathan. Yeah, that's what makes me a great podcaster. I don't think I have any more baggage to bring. To, I'm just oh, going to yeah. stick with me here yeah. for a minute. Stick with you. Just bring it back over yep. here. Yeah. I don't think I have anything else to add. You brought it back. I just did. To say, just you to had say nothing that, yeah. else to add. <laughs> well, I felt like I needed to take the spotlight off of Brandon for a you, second. I'm so. glad. I'm glad we had that moment. <laughs> Brandon, I love you. You're great. <laughs> I have nothing else to add either. <laughs> no, you love you. You're great. Everyone loves you. You're great. There. What is there to add? My back with this girl. I've only ever read Remains of the Day, and this I loved. Remains of the Day. Thought it was very well done. Yeah, that's about it. Didn't really like the Anthony Hopkins movie. Was surprisingly disappointed and bored by that movie, which I thought more or less missed the entire point of the novel by making Anthony Hopkins very competent and self-aware, which it's hard for Anthony Hopkins not to be, but that ain't the character that I read. Nope. Novel. No, we were reading about some autistic guy. Yeah, basically. The novel was really funny. I still remember the part where, what's the lady's name? Miss whoever. Havisham. Isn't Havisham the name of the school? Emma Thompson, I think, was her name. Yeah, Miss Thompson is outside the door and he just hides out like in a closet or something. He just hides. He actually <laughs> yeah. goes through the window <laughs> yeah, to avoid right. her. <laughs> I forgot about that. Which is that just pretty great. Such a silly yet relatable yet sad moment. I mean, it's just, it's brilliant. Miss Havisham has great expectations. Miss Havisham has great expectations. That's right. She's the wedding dress lady, isn't yeah. she? Yeah, she's a little cuckoo in my opinion. Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. She does love the Cocoa you know, Puffs. I knew that reference because that is a Dickens book that I have read. That's the famous one you like to talk about was Pip's Scarf satchel, red or satchel? What color was his satchel or whatever yep. it was? Yeah, Jake's famously Jake's favorite novel. Great, great expectations. Yeah. Jake had great expectations for it, and they yeah. were fulfilled. They were by his favorite author. Yeah, as Charles everybody Dickens. who's paid any attention knows. Yeah, Jake loves Dickens. Jake loves Dickens, <laughs> and I love Ishiguro. So let's talk about him. We set our baggage. What did you guys think about Never Let Me Go, the novel that we read by Kazuru? Ishiguru. Let me say that and not sound like a racist. Kazuo. Oh, shoot. It would help if I know how to say it. How do you Kazuo? say it? Kazuo. Ishiguro. There you go. It's kind of like it's spelled. <laughs> K-A-C-U-O. Wow. We just pulled that dagger out. <laughs> uh, let me see. <laughs> that was painful. Kazuo. I really enjoyed it. It got some some real tears for me. It was one of the more, one of the sadder heavy books that I've read in a long time. It's not the kind of like heavy sadness that leaves you with a cathartic kind of cry or anything like that. It's more just like he has a light touch, but there's something really maybe more sad about that to me. I, well, we just read Shakespeare. There's nothing cathartic in this tragedy. It's all It all plays out slowly. Basically, it's tragedy in slow motion and you don't get the moments. You get, you get Tommy screaming in the woods. Right. That's about it. And, and that's like seen from a distance. You you don't get big moments. No, it's just sort of, this is all really sad, isn't it? And with a little bit of, with a real feeling of futility. I really liked it. I think I called it melancholia porn in our Slack channel. Yep. I don't know that I've read a novel 
that has a more singular unity of effect that I can think of. I mean, it almost reads like a novella or a short story, like the kind of thing that's designed to be read in one sitting. Yeah. It does not strive for variety. It does not strive for... It's not trying to be anything more than exactly one thing, yeah, which it, is what you expect from a short story and not what you expect from a novel. Yeah, it evokes that feeling of of melancholy, and then it says, you shouldn't just be a little melancholy. You should slowly grow to be a lot melancholy. And that's basically what happens. <laughs> and that's what you do. And then <laughs> yeah. you're near, sort of near tears, but you don't really have a cathartic exactly. moment where yeah. you just burst into tears. You know, it's not yeah. like getting to the end of East of Eden where it's like, daddy! <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's just... Super sad. And it was like, well, life sucks. People suck. That that was sad. Yeah, you don't get that cathartic release. That's that is very true. Well, and it's not even like ah, the Holocaust sucks. I guess I'll not be happy with Nazis. Oh, abortion. Obviously, it reflects on those things, but it's about this issue that you know. What am I going to do? Go do with that? This, what this novel has now made me think that we shouldn't uh, harvest organs from clones. You know, like <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that he struck a bold stance for this social issue. I, I'm yeah. not criticizing here. I'm just describing the novel's effect on me, which was singular. Singular both in the sense of it has one effect and singular in the sense that I can't think of that many other. I can think of a lot of short stories that do things like this, but I yeah, can't think of that many it's novels. very similar to Hills with White, Hills Like White Elephants in the effect. Yeah, it, that's, that, that's a good reference point. Like, well, that couple is doomed. Oh, yeah. well. <laughs> They're not making it. They're not making it. Yeah. Hope she doesn't get that abortion. Life sucks. Yep. People are monsters. Oh, well. Not oh, well. I don't know. Maybe oh, well. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't know if it's oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> there is, I, I guess your oh, well is coming from the fact that the novel does kind of have a sense of futility, futility, or... inevitability that there's really no way around this. There's not anything they can do about it. Well, yeah. And, and the characters don't the ways that they uh what's the what's the Dylan Thomas thing they strive strive against the yeah rage rage, ra- ra- the yeah, rage rage of course uh, I don't know why I couldn't pull that I'm an idiot uh the rage is all muted. subliminated and muted and yeah. Kathy's just kind of accepting her Kathy's the name of the protagonist right yeah Kathy and Judy and Tommy is that who it no, is no it's Ruth Ruth right yeah and Ruth is the more outgoing Ruth rages a little bit and Tommy has one scene of of Real raging. rage, yeah. But other than, but our protagonist is just like accepting it, and yeah. it's part of what makes it beautiful, and part of what makes it sad, and part of what you could maybe criticize if you wanted to criticize something. Yeah, Brendan, so you haven't really. So he tells it from. I think he intentionally tells it from her perspective. I hadn't thought of it this way. It's interesting that usually someone writing a story like this, like in the face of a dystopian future. They would want to give us the character who does at least try to rage some. Mm-hmm. And there's, so that's where the catharsis comes from, either them failing. This Brave New World, is that the one where he pretty much fails at the end? Yeah, he wants to get outside of, yeah, well, I don't have to recount the plot for people, yeah. but yes. Yeah, and then, or you have like Fahrenheit 451 where he does rage and he wins. Or 1984, he rages yeah. and he pretty faint. Well, we won't say, I won't spoil it because we're going to read it and I don't think Jake's read it. Yeah. I haven't, and I don't know. Yeah. And so those are typically the options you would have and you would think the storyteller would go from one of those perspectives. But Instead, he chooses. says, what about the perspective of one of any infinite number of people that just sort of... Accept it and go with it. Right. Let, right. Let's not tell about the Holocaust from Schindler's perspective or from the perspective of somebody who even got out. Let's just tell the story of some random person on the train. And that might be where it's frustrating to people. It's because we don't have those typical plot notes that you're looking for of like i mean where they see that the institution's evil and they want to go out they're going to go out and prove their humanity to the world yeah instead all that takes place in the background and you realize that that's what those people in halisham were trying to do Mm -hmm. and that's why it had to close in the first place so instead like that's the story most people would have wanted to see right that's the moral story the teacher and the yeah that's the story they would want yeah Yeah, miss lucy's gonna and like and then when they Champion railed against the society, and yeah. And maybe they, be a martyr. Right. And when they were defeated, then, you know, then there's some catharsis there. But instead, he shows us the story that sometimes people do rail and they are defeated. But that doesn't mean a lot to the people who are still wrapped up into it. Mm-hmm. They still have to go on living. And this is the way that they do it. And this is the way they cope with it. And that's kind of the story he's, that's the story he's telling. telling. Maybe that's helpful to people because... 
Yeah, it's a very sad, melancholic story, but that's the way that this woman has chosen to make sense of the world for herself. Right. That well, and that's the world that, I mean, sorry to actually try to bring it home here, but that's the world we've lived in since 1972 or whenever Roe v. Wade was. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we live in a world that accepts the murder of millions of unborn children and harvests their organs for mm -hmm. scientific purposes. And, and most of us just go on living as though it's not even happening. Right. And what are we supposed to do about it? Right. Right. Yeah, there are those who rail against it. There are those who fight against it. But really, in the end, the institution, the society just quells it, puts it down. Well, but anybody writing a novel about abortion and anybody writing a novel about this sci-fi conceit, they're going to personify the institution. You know, there's going right. to be the bad guy or the guy that's just doing his job. We're going to get something, yep. whatever they want to do, whether it's evil or just banality or, or whatever. And there's going to be the people on the outside you know, it's like To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, we're stuck with Scout's point of view, but a lot of what we talked about in that book is how many different points of view and people she manages to cleverly, ironically capture yep. with Scout. And Ishiguro is almost obstinate in his unwillingness to do that sort of thing. He really yeah. wants to keep the scope of this thing limited to these three characters. Kathy and H, man. There's some stuff that's Vaguely on the periphery, you know, some assumptions you can make maybe about society, but not really. I mean, we don't really know ultimately yeah. how society copes with this, mm -hmm. how banal their acceptance of it is. We know that Miss Lewis, Lucy tried to stand against it and got shut down. And we know that these yeah. people kind of live in the real world and accept their fate, but we don't know why. And he's not interested in answering those questions. Yeah. One thing that is when you're reading Ishiguro, I think you can't assume that he automatically wants you to just identify with the narrator. Like he doesn't necessarily want you to, a lot of the emotional power of his stories comes with the, you not, not necessarily distancing yourself from the narrator, but not completely seeing yourself as the narrator. Mm. In other words, the narrator is a part of the story. They're a first person telling this, and he's not like telling you this is the only way to feel about this, right? Instead, you're supposed to examine Kathy H and her responses and that's part of reading the novel is not completely feeling as though you have to feel some sadness for her too. You can't just get wrapped up into her. Some sadness and some, he wants to ask, you know, should you feel outrage on her behalf? She doesn't. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But should you feel outrage on her behalf? Yeah. And so I think that's really important because if you get wrapped up in thinking that you're supposed to identify with Kathy H completely, then I think you're kind of misreading the story. That's what I think we were touching on last time when Jake was doing his errands, which is that Ishiguro is not so postmodern that he doesn't allow there to be a larger context that informs yeah. this story. Mm -hmm. There is a thing that's actually objectively happening to Kathy H, and we are called to have an opinion on that and to have an understanding of that, even when Kathy doesn't to understand it, which is a lot different yeah. than, say, Salim Salam or whatever his name was in Midnight's Children, where you never really get to step outside of him and be like, okay, here's the reality. Here's how yeah. much of what he was saying is BS. Here's how much of this was magic. Here's how much no. of this was just in his head. Like It's all muddled. It's yeah. all... And intentionally so. That's the yeah. effect and that's the pleasure, I that's guess, of the in, book. And the point. And the point. But Ishiguro is not interested in that. You're supposed to understand things that the butler in Remains of the Day, whatever his name was, never did. Or well, Kathy yeah, he, what, yeah, what he does in both of these books is he basically says, here's a fish that's been living in very strange water of their own making, maybe, in the case of the butler in Remains of the Day or of this other world. We often don't have the ability to step outside of ourselves and examine the air we breathe because it's the air we breathe. We take it for granted. And so here's a chance to step outside and yeah. see the air that somebody else breathes. And that's then supposed to make us reflect on, well, what is it in our world, in our society, or in my own life, in the case of Remains of the Day, mm -hmm. yeah. that I just take for granted. I don't see, I have these assumptions. I have all this cultural baggage that I don't, I just accept or I... Yeah, because if you end up reading it the other way, you might step away from this thinking that like, this is a almost narcissistic or something book. Like right. It's, it's just about, because all his books are from the first person. But I don't think that just because they're from the first person that that makes it where 
he means for you to be he like he won he's not holding Kathy H up as a paragon of somebody you should be. No, Ishiguru as a storyteller mm-hmm. is a character and you're engaging with him in a tri perspective kind of a way, right. you know. It's not just a dialogue between you and Kathy H. It's a dialogue between you, Kathy H, and Ishiguru who's standing on the periphery and directing like a like a film director. Yeah. And he'd be the first one to acknowledge his cinematic influence. He's being very intentional about what cards of Kathy's he's showing you and when to try and help you understand the larger context that yeah. she's not even interested in sharing with you. And I think he's interested in, he's, so he's trying to put his finger on this thing that's become like, you know, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, those sorts of movies that are intensely just sad mm-hmm. about the state of the modern world. And I think he's trying to give us a picture of these sorts of people and both what leads, what they do, how they think why they're that way and maybe in a way to help you hopefully not completely be that person. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, Kathy is not able to really understand the, the reality of her situation and neither is Stevens. Yeah. And okay. So in what ways am I like Kathy or am I like Stevens? Am I not able to understand myself or not able to understand the world I live in because of, yeah. You know, part of it should just, I think, in, tends to drive you to that place of, hey, these people have such obvious blind spots. Where are my blind spots? Yeah. Which is beautiful. I think if I am going, I, and I'm not, I don't know whether I want to criticize anything about this novel, but insofar as I maybe have a little discomfort with it or something, insofar as I could criticize it if I wanted to, what he does there is so perfect. It's such a closed loop that, oh, I don't know. There's something that you could argue feel, it feels a little coy. Like the novel could be about anything. Right. It also could be about nothing. It could just be about kind of feeling sad about, aren't we all just trapped in this existence where we're all going to die and we're all being used by the system. And we're all blind, too blind to even bother. It could be. Uh, things that we can't see. There's so many places where he avoids, like like a much lesser sci-fi novel would be overtly political one way or another, probably in a way that we as conservatives wouldn't appreciate. But this novel could just be kind of about anything. And I realize that's where it draws its power. It's also, I don't even want to say it makes me uneasy. It just gives me pause. It's just something to consider about this. And maybe something that for me keeps it out of the first rank of literature, like a novel at the end of the day actually maybe needs to plant a flag somewhere and be about something. something. But you could say, he's about everything, man. He's about the human condition. He's about you. Uh, and you're right. So I don't, I might disagree with myself. I'm just throwing that you out there for discussion. You go farther and say, he's about the, the sanctity of life. He picked clones because he wanted us to think about what it means to be human and how hollow, arbitrary rationalizations are about what, what it means to be human. Yeah. Right? Like us from the outside looking in, the only reason that these clones are subhuman is because we decided we needed them to be in this society in order to justify harvesting their organs there is nothing else Mm -hmm. but because we arbitrarily decided they needed to be subhuman in order to justify our ends that's what happened of course that draws back to the holocaust Mm -hmm. of course it's very easily applied to abortion but yeah he's he's definitely he wants to be in that position of just saying i'm just asking the questions guys yeah and there's something it's it's a beautifully done version of that. That in and of itself is maybe not enough for me want to want to put it on the first tier. Like you wish literature. that he had offered some answers. Like Tolstoy asks every conceivable question he can think of, answers a thousand of, thousand of them, leaves twenty thousand of them unanswered, and and has a grand old time doing it. Yeah, and that's why he's on the first tier. Same thing with for Shakespeare. Jane Austen asks five questions and she boy does she know the answers yeah. to every one of to them, every one of them. <laughs> but she's right but she's right um, she is right <laughs> uh, 
what's his face? Midnight's Children guy, Salman Rushdie, asks 50 questions and has no answers and yeah. is defiant about the idea that anyone would, except for maybe there's one answer, which is it's all crap. And uh, so I don't know. I, I, I loved this novel. I'm not yeah. really trying to criticize it. I certainly don't want, I would certainly recommend that our listeners read it that without any real reservation, I don't think. But there is some, like, it, it's so easy for, Jake to make an abortion analogy like this novel is almost just about abortion and yet it's not on the top 10 of every liberal book list because they all felt bad about abortion at the end of reading this book you know what I mean like I mean the, sometimes the book manages to say everything and say nothing sometimes they did right like if you search an abortion you're gonna find it brought up in New York Times articles and interviews and the New Yorker because I did do that mm-hmm. yeah a few months ago they're gonna ask the question they're gonna Put it to Ishiguro, are you trying to make a statement about abortion? So they see that connection. Yeah, and it's hard Ishi- to miss. Ishiguro will just say, well, I'm just asking questions about what makes us human. And if it makes you ask questions about abortion or anything else, that's great. Because those questions should never be unasked. Because the minute we stop answering those questions or asking those questions is the minute we have the Holocaust. Then once he does that, you can't say anything to him, right? Right. <laughs> like, but he's never going to say, "Yeah, this is a parable about abortion," or "Yeah, I really want us to examine that the question of abortion." But everybody does feel feels they, the tension of they it. They do feel the tension. They do feel that abortion is under the surface of it, and feels feel the need to comment on it or ask that question, right? And I'm not. No, I think you're right. Uh, no, yeah, you're you're definitely right. I um, think that. But yeah, because he's vague enough about it then yeah, the New York Times can still say, well, you know, he asked these questions and we all feel uneasy about it. And well, there's a, but this is where we apply it and not there. There's a sloppiness to having to answer a question like that. Tolstoy for all his greatness will always have a bunch of loose ends and be kind of sloppy. And his novels are imperfect. Levin can only learn so much. He can only learn as much as At Tolstoy knows. At the end knows. of the day, adultery, bad. Great. Yeah. And family life, Good. good. But God, I don't know. I mean, that's 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 how every Tolstoy novel ends. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> society it could be better, <laughs> but not by trying to construct it right. better. Just by families being good families. Yep, Ishiguro. I don't know about his other novels, but in the two that we've read, and especially in this one, it's like he's not going to risk answering those questions, and he doesn't have to. You know, I mean. It's a great question. It's the most artfully done question I've ever read, maybe. I mean, it's it's perfect, but it is a closed loop, and there is something maybe small about its ambitions. You know, it wants to provoke. It wants to arouse our interest. It wants to arouse our pity without channeling those things towards anything more than just a general contemplation I don't know. Of the human condition. I didn't expect to. I, well, I haven't he, thought about he, this. He I didn't expect to say any of this. He definitely doesn't want to make you angry. He does or doesn't? Doesn't. Yeah. Want to make you angry. He doesn't want to, because that would provoke you to some form of action. Yeah. Right. What he does is want to make you sad. Yeah. There is no. And, and it is that, and I think we've all said it at at some point, we've all used the word futility, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it really does feel futile. It feels like there are powers at work here. It almost feels like, in some sense, if you want to say that he's making a statement, you could argue that the statement he's making is absolutely every society has some form of human sacrifice. Human sacrifice is at the life-giving center of every society. And either it's abortion or it'll be clones or it was actual human sacrifice or it's a Christianity that puts the sacrifice of Jesus at the heart of its mm-hmm. civilization. Mm-hmm. But then I don't think you could, he's even cagey on, you know, another author might say there's sacrifice at the heart and it's bad, but he's like, and it's a thing. It's, it's sad. It's beautiful. It really sucks for the sacrificial lamb. But is it necessarily bad? I mean, I think he has a sense that it's bad. Yeah. Right? He wishes it was gone. But, but the but question he, is whether or not he... You might be able to argue that he thinks it's a necessary evil. Yeah. You well, might, I don't know What that. you can't do is well, I think argue that, definitively that 
he doesn't, doesn't think it's a necessary that's, yeah evil. that's right so he leaves it so vague that the question you can ask the question but you don't really get the answer mm-hmm. i mean I, yeah i see that criticism for sure um it's a f- inevitability and escaping it is futile at least yeah. in this because those who have tr- there have been those who have tried and yet they failed yep mm-hmm. and you don't get the sense that they were like extraordinarily virtuous people that you're like they it's not like uh, Kathy H is driving off at the end to go and be the next great martyr trying to bring the system down. No, it's not uh, Clive Owen and Children of Men or something like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, and you don't necessarily even get the sense that he thinks it's bad, like that she should have. No, if what anything, else could she do except make life comfortable for Ruth as Ruth prepares to die? I mean, if yeah. anything, some of the emotion, a lot of the emotion of the book comes from her resignation. Her resignation. I mean, that's what's sad. That's also what's noble about her. It's what you kind of like about her. Yeah. She's just going to do the best she can to make Tommy and Ruth's end good. Yeah. Or less horrific. And she does. I mean, the little grace notes that we find in the face of unspeakable evil are some of the most moving things in any story. And Ishiguro is very good at at those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Sometimes all you can do, I mean, for Ishiguro, it's sometimes all you can do is have sex. Sometimes all you can do is go for a drive. Yeah. Sometimes all you can do is listen to your favorite song. And that has to be enough to give you meaning to make it through the day. And there is and something that. By the re- way, what's more beautifully human than listening to some music and making love in the face of the unspeakable horror of our feudal existence? That's yeah. kind of his perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, but. I really like this book and I don't want to talk the bookendings official take into being anything less than glowing. So somebody needs to push back on any discomfort that I've expressed about Brandon, you love this novel and you love Ishiguro. So what do you think sitting there thinking? Yeah. I don't think that there has, I'm sorry, I'm just going to interrupt this because I I don't think there has to be a real pushback in order to justify this novels, uh, justify yeah, I think that's true. This novel. Yeah, so I, th- I think we talked about this with the Remains of the Day episode. I think that in the end, this is what you get from Ishiguro. Mm-hmm. Is that as far as the postmoderns go, he's got one of the more honest takes on what people do in the face of that. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have any answers for you. Right. Like he gets really close. He gets to the sadness. He gets to the emptiness. He gets to the futility of anything outside of Christ. Right. He doesn't try to offer you society as an answer. He doesn't try to offer you like human betterment as an answer. He just says, this is who you are. Now he never realizes that basically what he's doing is tiptoeing around. Well, yeah, this is exactly who you are unless you have the gospel. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he really puts his finger on just the horror and sadness of what it means to just be adrift in this world. Yeah. He doesn't offer. So like with, you have the, all the political movements, everything that's happening right now, he doesn't offer you any of that thing as solace, as solace. Right. Right. It's the interactions between these people. And now he does have his criticisms where it's like, yeah, this is a society that's chosen to define life in a very limited way so that it can justify things to itself. And here's how these people have to deal with that. These people who have been categorized as subhuman or Mm -hmm. as not even human. And yeah, he doesn't offer you any answers, but I don't think that he, I'm with Jake. I'm not sure that he necessarily has to. No. To make it worthwhile. I I would say in order to be in the first tier, he should. I would say the limit of this book's ambition is the limit of this book's greatness. I guess that's what I'm positing. Now, who cares? His answer, I think, would be, I don't, if if that's your definition of the first tier, then that's not where I want to be. And okay, fair enough. But if I'm trying to decide, if I am trying to quantify or qualify it, I would say, he is less than a truly great writer because he does not have the courage to actually pursue his ideas beyond a certain point. And there, there is a sense with Ishiguro that a lot of this, I keep using the word postmodern. It's just the most useful way to say it. A lot of this postmodern literature pushes towards this narcissistic Mm self-involvement. And with Ishiguro, you don't get the sense that he thinks that that's a completely healthy way to live that if he if he criticizes any people, it's the people who would turn would it would be the narrators who would be driven to write this in the first place, right? right. So he he usually criticizes these people. Ruth and Tommy, they're not the ones writing the story, right? 
And there's a reason that he chooses Kathy, and it's not necessarily because he wants to hold Kathy up as a glowing example of what it means to be a person. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. as a reader, I certainly had like, okay, Tommy's responding to this about like, I think a person would. And Ruth is certainly responding to this about like, I think a person would. Kathy, eh, what's the deal with her? But I think in the end, what he sees is that like, so a lot of these first person narrator stories, you know, they run into the problem of, well, if your narrator is really this amazing of a heroic person, would they ever sit down to write this book? Mm -hmm. Right. And so Ishiguro comes to terms with the fact, well, here are the actual, the type of people that would sit down. It's the butler who is so self-obsessed that he's going to keep this journal about trying to figure out this one moment of his life that he just can't come to terms with. And it's these the, people that are trying to make, make themselves okay with what has happened. Yeah. And that's, that's the artist of the floating world. That's oh, the pale view of the hills. All these are about these people who have had something happen and they have to somehow try to make themselves okay with it. So it's like a therapy that just lies to yourself. And I think Ishiguro kind of has his finger on that particular impulse that people have mm-hmm. and he that particular type of person. Yes, he does. He does very well. So he does that. It's probably because he has that within himself too and sees it. It's it's hard not to imagine that's the case. I mean, yeah. he, he has that kind of person's number. Must be for a reason. Yeah. He understands that. He understands a lot of the ways that we console ourselves and he doesn't cheapen or romantic. You could imagine a modern novelist really heightening the sex in this book you know that's yep. that's the way that we find transcendence in the face of all this meaninglessness but he doesn't do that he's got a nice angle on the way that the society works the way that they introduce the idea you know the fact that she doesn't remember ever really understanding or being having anyone sit down and tell her exactly what her purpose in life is it just was something that they kind of absorbed after a while the euphemistic language, what do they say? Closing when someone, what is it? Uh, it's not closing. It's, um, maybe it's something closing. like that. Yeah, yeah, something like that. When when someone has um, their third or fourth organ removed. Completion. completion. They complete. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. Things like that. He has a nice light touch, but very accurate and, and moving yeah, touch on and things the, like that. And the idea that they have that if two of them can prove that they're in love, that they'll somehow be saved. Like this idea, this hope that runs throughout, like the central hope of the novel. Mm-hmm. And then the way he pulls it out from under you, it's uh Oh man, that's so that's, sad. That's tragic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess that would be my attempt at a defense there. So Again, something that yeah. uh, hopefully it wasn't didn't come off as too much of an attack. No, it wasn't. But I think I think what you're saying is fair, but I just think that you have to and you could criticize an author like so he's a very literary writer. Mm-hmm. Like another guy that we love is Dennis Johnson. Right. But you, for writers like this, you have to almost let them show you how they need to be read. Yeah. Does it make sense? Yes, yes, yes. And so, and if you're not willing to let them show you how they need to be read, then you're going to misread and misunderstand what's going on. Yeah. And so, if you approach Ishiguro thinking that he's holding out this sadness to you as the only solution to life, then I think that you're missing the point. That You have to understand and have to think about the fact that Kathy H. is the one telling the story. Right. That's an interesting idea. The idea that the author teaches you how to read their book. I don't know that I've ever thought of it in that terms, but it's really true. And it's really a good way of explaining the people that just don't like this book. It's not that they're blockheads or anything, but I think there's people who are just like, nah, I don't want to read it that way, Ishiguro. Yeah. Like, I, I, I'd rather not think of it that way. That's mm-hmm. that's just not my speed. And I fair enough, but certainly known more than one person who, well, that's why we were at pains in our context to say it's not really a sci-fi book because you can imagine, you know, this gets lumped on lists of the best sci-fi novels. Like, if that's what you're looking for, you're. Oh, there are a lot of sci-fi people out there who hate this book because it's just bad sci-fi. Yeah, rightfully so. It's not good sci-fi. Yeah. Like, if that's what you're looking for, then yeah, because it doesn't spend like, chapters and chapters of exposition explaining the intricacies of how this society came to be in the first place. Which, if that's what you want, that's fine. Plenty of books out there for you, not written in yes. luminous, deft it's po- prose. And, yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Brandon thinks you're stupid, but <laughs> I like you. <laughs> Ah, uh, gosh, what, what else do you guys want to say about this book? I don't... It's weird. I'm going to make, just make a point that if it's weird doing this episode in the dark, it feels sad. Yeah. <laughs> I, I felt kind of a melancholia. Well, we, we called this, uh, we, we started by calling this Booking After Dark, and I think it's appropriate that the album that Never Let Me Go appeared on was Songs After Dark. Yeah. Songs After Dark. Yeah. Wow. That's deep, man. So deep. I'm not, not being ironic. It is deep, man. Oh, man. 
I don't know what else to do with the rest of our time besides just say that was great, but that uh, you know, I guess I'd say that he's not an overly metaphorical writer, but mm-hmm. when he like the lights on the pier at the end of Remains of the Day is really powerful, but also in this, just the name of the song, Never Let Me Go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That they keep trying to find. and Baby find, Never Let Me Go. Yeah, and they finally find the tape, and that's the whole that story. That childish misinterpretation of yeah. it being an actual baby. and Yep. And then... Whoever walk... Oh, what what's your face walking in? Oh, that part's devastating. That was the part yeah. that made me cry the most. Yeah. And again, that's not about crying for Kathy H. That's about seeing it through that other woman's eyes and realizing what she's seeing yeah. and how sad it is. Yeah. And so having that and then, you know, the, that'd be the center of what slowly reveals Tommy's feelings for Kathy, all that. And then also having that then be the title of the novel, where it's just on a surface level, never let me go. And then you realize how it ends. It's just immensely powerful. It takes a real deft touch with the lights at the end of the pier and with the, the album called Never Let Me Go and everything. Ishiguro is not afraid of a big, fat, meaty, meaty symbol. Yeah. And pulling that off without making it stupid. Without it being melodramatic or yeah. ham-fisted. That's, I think most modern writers just wouldn't even try it. You know, Unless you're they be... were trying to be super pulpy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you could try and be over the top or something like that, but yeah, yeah. The fact that he's able to, he not only has the courage to do it, but then just gets away with it in a way where it just feels really natural. It's admirable. It's it is admirable. It's a neat trick. Yeah, yeah. Do you guys think that the? uh, I mean, I call that melancholia porn. Do you think that the melancholy for melancholy's sake of it all in this novel? could be self-defeating or bad for a certain sort of reader? Do you think that there's people that could get too wrapped up in what this novel's doing? I think that the kind of person that, you know, likes to sit on rainy days and read nothing but Ishiguro and think about their existential angst should probably stay away from too much of that. I don't, but Yeah, a lot a of lot. those people are probably like, Teen, not to be a jerk, but a lot of those people are probably teenage girls that yeah, right. would rather be reading The Outsiders or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like, no, nothing quite like this. This is a little too real for them. If you have the right? maturity to even like this, you know, pick this novel up, then there's a decent chance, I would say, that you have the maturity to not be know drawn to in, walk away. To know to walk away. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I don't know, if at the end of the day you come away from this book with a sober realization that we're all going to die and that there are some evils that we're not going to escape and God help us. That's probably good enough and you can move on to something else. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I it's don't like, know what else to say to that question. Maybe all the stuff I'm saying about his ambition could best be summed up in an answer to that, which is he's not a one-stop shop novelist. You read Tolstoy, yeah. you're like, <laughs> you're going to get some romance. You're going to get some action. You're going to get some this, that you, you got, you got like a balanced diet in Tolstoy. It's one of the things that made him makes him great. Ishiguro, as we've said, is doing one thing, and if that's yeah. the only thing that you want, then that's you a little, some problems. You got some maybe. problems. Yeah, I think that comparing him to a short story was better, earlier was helpful because there is one thing that he's doing, but I don't even. I mean, you read some of his short stories, like Nocturnes. Some of those are pretty funny. Mm-hmm. It's not like this is the only thing he knows how to do. No, within the confines of this novel, yeah. he's doing one thing. But but yeah, it's not like he can't do other things. Yeah. There's a scene where somebody is convinced to act like he's a dog while he's taking care of somebody else's apartment. And then the wife of the guy walks in and sees this guy like bouncing around the room, pretending like he's a dog while he's tearing things up with his teeth. So there's some pretty funny stuff that happens in some <laughs> of his stories you can't imagine happening and never let me go. Remains just... of the day, everybody, what sticks with you is the melancholy ending, but that novel is actually pretty funny. Just, I mean, Stevens, is that what you said his name was? I couldn't remember yeah remains um, of the day yeah stevens stevens is you you do actually have enough distance on stevens in the middle chunk of that novel to get a, at least i did maybe i'm just a no it's some funny but stuff yeah. like, oh, this guy's nuts it's pretty I ridiculous mean, yeah. yeah and yeah this novel doesn't strike the those tones this novel is like one just moody chopin piece the whole time yes yeah that's a good, chopin is exactly good right. analogy yeah. yeah which i like chopin but i do too you know, he's not my only, he's not the only musician I listen to. So don't listen to just Chopin. Don't read yeah. just Ishiguro. Yeah. yeah. 
But there's also a whole lot of people out there that just don't take their lives very seriously. And there's people that need to slow down and smell the melancholy, you know, like. Yeah, yeah. it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of laughter. Exactly. And Ishiguro knows how to take you there. Yeah. And I think what you said about teenage girls was helpful there, too, because you're right. Most people who are looking for that melancholia sort of porn, they're not going to go to a book like this. No. Well, and part of the reason is, again, because. It's just a little too real here, mm-hmm. you know? It's just a little too look in the face of actual death and yeah. depravity. I mean, mel- melancholia porn, like any other kind of porn, actually gives you the feelings without demanding anything of you. Yeah. And that's why this book actually isn't that, because it does ask you to engage with people and with reality and with the world yeah. and to be thoughtful about it. And I think there's something admirable about that. There's something admirable about him not providing some kind of cheap catharsis at the end. He doesn't really want to let you off the hook with a big scene where you can just ball your eyes out or... Yeah, yeah, and part of that's... Then dust your hands off and walk away. Yeah. Part of that is because he chose to use a narrator who is so emotionally kind of distant Mm. from the rest of them because this is the way that she deals with the fact that this is happening is you have to develop some sort of emotional distance. Yeah, the fact that she can distance herself emotionally from Ruth and Tommy as they're dying yeah, is pretty damning. Yeah. And I think that he's pointing to something that's pretty true about our society is that we're willing to feel when it's convenient, but still be emotionally distant where it's also convenient. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if if you've been- There are a world of people out there that believe that abortion is evil and who live every day as though it's not a reality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? And there's a lot that can be said about how we have to deal with the evils, persistent evils in this world that we can't, any one person can't do anything about. Yeah. You're not saying that you shouldn't have celebrated your birthday yesterday because exactly. abortion. Exactly. That's just as immature That's, as the other thing. Yeah. The the kinds of people that they feel the weight of the evil of abortion and therefore everything has to be about that. They've got their own problems too. Yeah. Well, yeah. Typically what I've seen is those people- like to feel the weight of that thing so that they can then blame the failure of anything to change on everybody who doesn't feel the weight the same way they do. Mm. Yeah. And meanwhile, (laughs) who suffers the most in their lives? Yeah. People that they're supposed to love, their wife and children. Their wife and children. Yeah. 100%. Almost to a man. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it's it's just a stereotype. It really is. And so, again, you have to read the novel that Ishiguro is presenting to you. And again, I think that if you think you're supposed to identify like favorably with Kathy H., it's just the wrong way to approach it, that um, her emotional distance is there and you should feel the emotional distance, but it should bother and trouble you. Yeah, there's a way in which this is just a horror story. I mean, there's a way in which she's, she's casting it a certain way, but, oh, this girl actually presided over the death of her lover and her best friend yeah yeah i don't i don't want to see i don't know i haven't seen the film adaptation of this but unadaptable i mean if if somebody's going to adapt it it should be uh i don't know what jordan peele yeah oh, yeah, yeah actually, somebody that that's can... who should do it if anybody's going to adapt it it should be somebody like jordan peele who's going to actually make it a horror film mm-hmm. well what you want the right way to adapt it would Where be it all feels uncanny and off yeah it should be bucolic on the surface but it should just like you should be terrified by what's going on behind every closed door that she exactly. walks past yeah and, and they're actually so i was doing when i was doing some research for this there is a critic who put this on his top 10 horror novels of the 2010s right so, so. that was a smart idea yeah it's a fun and a fun I mean, as a critic, what a fun way to... Yeah, and his argument was exactly what you're saying, is that here you have this girl who is... This is horror. Yeah. Yeah, here's this girl who has been so deadened by what she's had to go through that she's willing to let all these horrors happen around her, and she just tries to live her life. And she participates actively in the horrors. Yeah. Right. She's pushing the button on the... On people. On the, the, the Holocaust mill. Yeah. Yeah. And what society, what is the and society the that's- the fact that she's going to turn around and get in the chair and have the button pushed on her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they are asking her to do it. I mean, that's, that's horrifying. Not but, even asking. They've yeah. conditioned her that it's a fait accompli. She must and shall do it. And therefore, yeah, there's no other option for her. And then the really scary unspoken thing at the heart of the novel, <clears throat> she was in this 
nice place. Like she, she just happened to I look know. out. Yeah. Like, what is actually going on in this world with, with everybody else who's not part of this program? Yeah. What but, are, what ha- what's happening to everybody else? Yeah. Yeah. It's horrific. Yeah. This was the, you got the, you're lucky. You got the nice version. Yeah. She, she has you, no, you she has the, no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's just uh, one interesting thing to say about this novel is that pretty much all the critics that I read for this, nobody can really agree what category this fits into. Mm-hmm. It, like it can fit into so many categories because it's it actually seems, it does have one note that it's playing, but genre-wise and literary-wise, it's doing a whole lot of really complicated, interesting things. Mm-hmm. So it's fantasy, it's sci-fi, it's horror, it's... Dystopia. Yeah, it's teen drama, it's all these things. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it works pretty well as a as a teen drama, actually. Yeah, the interesting thing is that if you're going to argue for any of those effects, you have to argue for it almost as so, as an effect that happens to you after as you contemplate the novel. Like, you're mm-hmm. not... The reason you would never put it on a top 10 horror list is because any horror fan looking to be scared is not going to get any kind of a visceral thrill right. out of this novel just but, like you don't put it on a sci-fi list because any sci-fi fan is looking for some world building and some yeah. actual science but as 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 a horror fan and a sci-fi fan talking about it right now in the dark with you guys i felt some chills yeah you know which, which is why i think that yeah he might not get up there to like the highest tier but i think that ishiguro will be remembered for this one note that he sounds and like the thing that he did have to say about the modern condition, but also just as far as a craftsman with storytelling, it's pretty much every story he tells does the same thing. It's like genre bending, but is nuanced genre bending. I don't know. So like even with the buried giant, we're going to see the same thing. Yeah. The more I think about my criticisms, the more I think I'm not sure I agree with them. I mean, okay, sure. He's not Tolstoy. Great. Nice criticism, Nathan. You really got him. <laughs> Way to go. <laughs> Take that, Ishiguro. You ain't no Tolstoy. I mean, I think there's something to it. I'm not going to go back and edit it out. I, I I would like people to think about what I said there and think about whether they'd want to put him in the first tier or not. Maybe oh, yeah. I wouldn't. But I think there's something to it, but it's also who who is Tolstoy. <clears throat> His ambitions are small in some way. Not small, but the scope of what he wants to do in any given work is small, perhaps. But there's a humility in that. I'm not Tolstoy. I actually wasn't born with Tolstoy's gifts. What I can do is spend 10 years writing one novel and crafting it to do one thing. Which I think does fit his bio. I mean, yeah, that's that's he, that's he, what he said, explicitly said he wants to do. Yeah, and he got a late start in his career. Kind of found out accidentally that he wanted to be a writer when he wanted to be a musician at first. I mean, there's just a, and so yeah, he doesn't feel the, he hasn't felt like since he was young this great burden to be the, the next great novelist that has all these wonderful things to say. He's mm-hmm. found that he has one thing that he says really well, and he's going to play variations on it. Yeah. So. I mean, if you were to take everything else that we've read so far in 2020 and throw Tolstoy and Austin out like we always do, mm-hmm. like we're going to have our end of year, it really comes down to Never Let Me Go and To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? <clears throat> and if you compare that those books to what made our final cut in previous years, it, Never Let Me Go may not you know, reach... I think we'd pick To Kill a Mockingbird out of that, the two, between the two of them probably. Like if we were putting them in a time capsule. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But that but that's really just so, comes down to, like I've been saying, the fact that To Kill a Mockingbird, it's a m- much more imperfect novel. It's also a novel that just is doing a lot of other things. So it's like, hey, I like humor. I like colorful care. I like this. I like that. So I like To Kill a Mockingbird. But it's almost pointless to compare them because Never Let Me Go is just not its scope is so much smaller and what it's doing, it's doing more effectively, well. you could argue. This yeah. is minimalistic in a way that To Kill a Mockingbird's not. If if he had tried, tried decided to pare his book down and, and make his scope, I'm going to take out racism with my one Ishiguro bullet, I assume he could fire that bullet more effectively than To Kill a Mockingbird did. It's just that To Kill a Mockingbird had a machine gun and was shooting, hitting, hitting more targets. Shooting everything. Yeah. <laughs> So it's like, they're you almost... Know, it's funny to speak of it that way because it really says something about Ishiguro when you realize most of our discussion of To Kill a Mockingbird was how tight, how yeah. perfect, how pared down, how edited to perfection 
how yeah you know non wasteful she was when it you know as opposed to Mark Twain or mm-hmm. it feels much more like uh, Hemingway yeah, yeah, yeah. right and so we're comparing her now to Ishiguro and what we get is this like this sense that next to Ishiguro to kill a mockingbird is loose and yeah. you know using a machine flabby. gun I mean, and it's... flabby and and you know generous and we would actually never like yeah that's to, really bad uh, Harper Lee is not generous in the way that we've described people like Ray Bradbury or Steinbeck or whatever as being generous. Mm-hmm. She's very controlled and very to the point, and there's not a lot of flab, not a lot of wasted anything. Yeah. But Ishiguro is just that much more. It's like that dumb Twitter formula that I hate. It's uh, Lee Harper. I wrote a really tight, controlled novel. Ishiguro, hold, hold my, my beer. beer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's it's Harper Lee, by the way. All right, Lee Harper. Yeah, <laughs> I do apologize, folks. You guys know my. I, I like to say authors backwards, right? Yeah. <laughs> so Ishiguro, I, I introduce you as Justine Brandon yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mensel Jacob. Oh, man. Well, this novel's great. Uh, anything else you guys want to say about it? No, I think that I've said. Jake, you definitely came out as a never let me go guy over a remains of the day guy. Yeah, I I just enjoyed never let me go much more than I enjoyed remains of the day. Hmm. No question. I stand by that opinion and I know it's an unpopular one, maybe in this room, certainly outside of it. Brennan, you've read them all, I guess. Yeah. Where, where would you rank this in his oeuvre and specifically against remains of the day? I think I'm actually with Jake. I think I like this one better than remains of the day. And they Uber, would both be up there towards the top. They'd both be the top of his. Yeah. Barry Giants up there around that area, but it's not quite at the top. So. Would those be the one? Like, we I might, think those we are his top. Those are I think these are his top two. Those so in them. a couple years, when we come back to Ishiguro, it'll be Barry Giant. Yeah. Well, Barry Unless Giant's comes the Arthur one, right? New. Yeah. If people can get it, Nocturnes would be up there because it's good, his short stories. But mm. yeah, we may be doing the Barry Giant next year if people get us to 1500. Or like, Next episode. Oh, is it an yeah. Arthur? Yeah. It's Arthur. It's a, it's a retelling of Sir Gawain and the Green oh, Knight. Well, but besides that, we might not get to him for a while. So, But it's like, as far as like this criticism of melancholy and sadness, that's like, that's just where he really dives into it huh. deep. It's very, very sad. It's just got an air of mist and fog to it mm-hmm. all over the place. So, Well, I guess I'll be the outlier. I think I did like Remains of the Day a little bit better. I'm not sure why exactly. Remains of the Day was funny, I guess. I, I, my patience runs thin with things that are humorless. Are humorless, yeah. And it's not that Never Let Me Go was humorless in a bad way. It just was humorless, and that's not as much of my speed. Yeah. Remains of the Day was funny, and the stab at the end of Remains of the Day, while not as ultimately powerful, was still good mm, yeah, a little bit more cathartic maybe i don't know I mean, rains yeah. of the day was just more fun yeah more, more of a page turner i guess there you go uh, not so the, I, I just disagree yeah well, i think good men can on on this particular subject yeah maybe i'll get to the end of my life and realize i had it wrong that'll be a sad day i'll sit and the lights will come on and i'll think oh boy i should have said never let me go i yeah. missed it all those years ago and then you'll die. And then I'll die. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll take my organs. Yeah. <laughs> we are clones. <laughs> we are clones. Yeah. Should we, that really, we really should have led with that. Yeah. <laughs> it really affects the way we looked at this story. <laughs> should have came out in baggage check, but you know, we didn't have the self-awareness to really know to put it in there. But yeah. we can, we can look back at the beginning of the podcast and realize like we wasted the whole podcast. We, man. It's wow. all been an exercise in futility. It has. I'm so sad. But isn't it sad and beautiful? Yeah. I'm going to go cry in the woods. Never let me go. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know what, guys? We're sitting in the dark and our battery's going to run out. So I don't think we're going to call out our patrons today, but we love you, donors. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Thanks for supporting us. People can go to patreon.com forward slash the bookening to support this work. And. Leave us a nice review on iTunes. I'd love to get a few more of those in the near future. Yeah. And yeah, let us know your thoughts on Never Let Me Go. If you have them, send Brandon a fax. Yeah. 
effects. Mm-hmm. Never gonna let me go. Never gonna take your liver. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Nathan that, Alverson game. That, that was great. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. <laughs> I did it. I brought us to it in for a landing. <laughs> Whee! Yay. You win. Uh, well, like I said, a sustained mood of melancholy is something that I have limited patience for. All right. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> Goodbye.